Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to Darden, and uh, especially uh, welcome to uh, Peter Brabeck, the uh, speaker of today, chairman of Nestle. Um, I can't wait to listen to your talk, but uh, before we introduce you, I uh, want to say a few things about uh, world water events here at uh, UVA. Um, I'm Peter Devere. I teach economics, the global economics of water here at the Darden Business School. Um, here at the university, we care a lot about water and uh, water research. Um, as we speak, there's a, a major initiative underway to, to build a global water center here at UVA. Uh, water is a uh, precious resource, right? With uh, population growth and with climate change, water is increasingly scarce, right? And there's a growing competition, right? Um, for water among cities, uh, agriculture and the environment. Right, and it, this makes it increasingly a challenge to secure um, enough water or free water uh, access, safe water access for everybody. Um, so the World Water Events, right, of which uh, this, this talk is the keynote address, um, are supported uh, across campus by many, many departments, right, and so they, um, they really want to focus on the vital role that uh, uh, water plays in our societies, and our program this year um, covers watershed conservation in cities, um, land grabbing or water grabbing, and also a talk on stormwater, right, and there will also be a river cleaning activity on uh, March uh, 19th, right, to, uh, it's a bit of a long list, but I do want to mention all the supporting instances at this uh, university, right, so there's a Vice President for Research, the Center for Global Health, the Center for Global Initiatives, the Darden Business School, the Environmental Science Department, the Batten School of Public Policy, the School of Architecture, and the Rivana Conservation Alliance. Um, I want to also especially thank uh, the Darden leadership team. Right? Their work have been, has been incredible. Without their efforts, uh, today's event would not have been possible. Um, we also have benefited quite a bit from our cooperation with uh, the Nature Conservancy. And Brian Richter, the uh, chief water scientist of the Nature Conservancy, will uh, introduce uh, today's speaker, Peter Rabbit. Well, and Peter, I'll start by saying thank you to you for your tireless efforts of pulling this wonderful event together. Um, I'm really, really excited to introduce you to Peter Brabeck. He has led the Nestle Group from 1997 to 2008, first as their CEO until 2005, and then became both the chairman and the CEO of, of Nestle in 2008, um, in, in 2005 rather. In 2008, he handed over, over the office of the CEO and remains as the chairman of the board of Nestle. A lot of you in the room will be very happy to hear that uh, he started his career as an economics major um, and has been conferred an honorary doctorate degree uh, from the uh, University of, of Alberta in Canada. We've learned a lot about Peter today, um, including the fact that he flies his own airplane uh, when he's traveling around Europe or, or here within the United States when he's visiting. Um, very, very impressive. Uh, but I want to tell you... Um, I want to tell you just a, a, couple, a little bit about why I have been paying attention to this man for the past decade. Peter was one of the first in the business community that really started to raise the caution flag about the water problems, the water scarcity problems on our planet, and 
and the challenges that they were going to propose that they were going to pose for our society in the 21st century. And I've always been very impressed with Peter's leadership on this because he didn't do it because it was the in vogue sustainability initiative of the day. Uh, he didn't do it because he wanted to greenwash his company. Uh, he did it because he honestly saw it as a very, very big concern, a very big business risk. In fact, over breakfast he shared with us that he sees water and water scarcity as being the number one threat to the future of his company, the Nestle Corporation. He has been a very passionate and articulate spokesman on this subject. Uh, it was uh, in no small measure that the World Economic Forum has elevated this issue to, its, to among the top couple of global risks on its, on its annual list. And he was also very strong in advocating that water receive a prominent position in the global sustainability, sus the sustainability develop, sustainable development goal, sorry, uh, recently adopted by countries all around the world. So I am extremely pleased uh, to uh, open the stage to Mr. Peter Brabeck. Thank you, Brian. Well, thank you, Brian, for this very nice introduction. But above all, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being in this room with me and uh, listening to a subject which is, yes, it's uh, very high on my prayer on my priority list, and uh, uh, I understand uh, that for me it's a privilege to be here at this university which uh, has a long, long history. I mean, from, 19, uh, from 1819, when it was created, we almost 190 years. That even is longer than the 150 years of the company that I have the honor to, to chair. So I know what this means. And uh, of course, having uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson as the founder of this university, uh, who had a very strong set of values, uh, which I personally appreciate even today. And I think his values are valid for today and should perhaps be more in the forefront of American politics than perhaps they are. If I look at the latest television debates, frankly speaking. Uh, but uh, you were coming here in order to listen a little bit about the water challenges. And uh, rightly so, we have put them, or you have put them, into plural. This is not one challenge. Those are many challenges. Uh, and I think this became particularly clear when over the last couple of months, we were discussing about the post-2015 uh, UN development uh, agenda. Um, I was privileged uh, to have been uh, chosen an ambassador for the private sector in the establishment of those uh, uh, development uh, points, and I have been fighting for, and I'm very proud that we have achieved, that water has uh, become a single distinctive objective of the new uh, UN development agendas. Um, it's clear that subject is extremely wide. I have spent now since 8 o'clock in the morning with different parts of faculty, students, uh, talking about the subject. And I didn't have to repeat myself, I think, once, because each time we were looking at it from a different angle. So you will understand that 
uh, I can only depict very general subjects, but as we will have time for discussion afterwards, I'm already now looking forward for this interactive part of my presentation. So let me start straight away with um, this post-2050 new and development agenda. And um, I have, just to make it easier for you, I have highlighted uh, the respective keywords in yellow. And I think they provide an excellent overview of these main challenges related to water today and in the coming decades. So what I'm going to do, and this is only the first part, I'll show you now the second one. Yes, here. So here you have the six uh, special uh, water goals that there are. I'm going to use those water goals as the structure for my uh, speech and uh, to make some tentative suggestion on how we can address them. And by the way, these challenges, although they are called development challenges, for me, they are not, frankly speaking, reserved to developing countries. A lot of them also apply to developed countries, to some advanced economies, and if you allow me, I think some of them also apply very clearly to the United States. So let me start uh, with the first one, which is safe and affordable drinking water. By 2030, the UN member countries and governments want to achieve universal and equitable access to safe and affordable drinking water for all. That's the first objective. Now, water is uh, a human right. And I want to repeat this once again. It's very interesting if you listen to some of uh, NGOs and if you listen to some of the blogs that were out there, I'm constantly being uh, criticized of saying that I'm against water being a human right. Well, the truth is it's just the contrary. In 2005, I had the possibility uh, to talk to Kofi Annan, and I said, who was then Secretary General of the United Nations, and I told him, Kofi, we have to make this water a human right. Where I'm limiting myself is, is I consider the human right to be the 1.5, uh, sorry, the, the five liters of hydration water that we need and the 20 to 25 liters of the minimum sanitation. That's a human right. This human right accounts for 1.5% of the fresh water use that we have. Where I am not in agreement is that the 98.5% of water that we're using in an irresponsible manner, that this is being called a human right, and therefore it shouldn't have any value. That's a difference. But normally you see only that I'm saying it's not a human right. It's not a human right, the 98.5%. Yes, it is a human right, the 1.5%, which is the water which is necessary for the survival. Today, only a very small part of water used in the households is for drinking. And you have here a chart in front of you, a chart of WHO, which shows you the different uses. At this point of time, even the development goals are only talking about the drinking water. I personally always include in the human right also the water for cooking and for basic hygiene. So in my 
calculations are over, include those one also. But the interesting is, the further away you are going down, uh, the less urgent becomes the issue, the less emotional becomes the issue. We never seldom have an emotional outburst about the water that we are using for our washing. Yes, once upon a time, there are some especially younger people who say, well, we should have a shower together. That will save some waters. But this is about all what it gets on the emotional side. And it also, no doubt, seems like uh, that uh, the abuse of water for recreation and watering flowers and somewhat extreme to expect that uh, uh, this also is part of the human rights. So I think the, the more we are going down on this pyramid, the less we are getting into problems. The real problem is on top of it. The, beyond the declaration uh, of international human rights, uh, diplomats' governments are challenged by some rather unpleasant practical realities of the way municipal water is managed today. So, what is the reality? The first one is, and let's start with the positive news, between 1990 and 2010, over 2 billion people gained access to so-called improved drinking water sources. And this exceeded the Millennium Development Goals for Water set for the time up to 2015. But I repeat, they have access to improved drinking water resources. First of all, this leaves about 750 million people without improved drinking water. And worst, ladies and gentlemen, improved drinking water does not mean that this water is necessarily safe. About 2.6 billion people still rely on unsafe drinking water from standpipes, from trucks, or from leaking pipes serving their homes. And again, unfortunately, I will not exclude the United States, as the latest Flinch, Michigan case clearly proved. So providing truly safe drinking water must be the target, and this is by no means a very easy task. And the other part, of course, is affordability. Municipal water supply organizations tend to cross-subsidize. They keep prices for tap water at home far below the cost of infrastructure, and therefore they don't have the money in order to improve the infrastructure. But this is money handed out to the more prosperous people, namely those 2.3 billion of people who have no household connection, they have to pay many times a multiple price per cubic meter of water than those who have money. So the middle class in the developing countries, which have a pipe in the, in the house, they get the subsidized water, they can fill up their swimming pool, they can uh, put water into their garden, and the real poor people, they don't even have a water pipe in the house, they have to buy it from the tankers, as you can see over there, and you can see what the poorest people of the poor are paying for a liter of water against the middle class of those countries. So a policy which is completely wrong, and I think also here, better politics will have to sort this out very soon. I mentioned already, I think the Flint, Michigan story shows that the water challenges are not limited to developing countries. 
There's a widening gap between excellent required investment to renew the water infrastructure. Some drinking water pipes in London, for example, are the more, uh, more than 150 years old. And it leads just to more leakages. And that is another point very important. Many times I'm being criticized saying that I want to privatize water. Absolutely wrong. First of all, 97% of the total water municipal supplies is in the head of governments or of community. Only 3% are privatized. And those 3% are not performing better than the, than the other one who is in public hands. So London, which is, has a privatized, uh, privatized uh, municipal water supply, the leakage is still about 30%. Okay? So the amounts that need to be mobilized for investment in maintenance and some in the expansion of water infrastructure are therefore a third major challenge with respect to the aim to achieve universal and equitable access to safe and affordable drinking water. And you can see here on the chart that we would need, estimated by OECD, only in OECD countries and BRIC countries, about a trillion of US dollars per year in investment against a real actual investment, which is about 550 billion. And add to this the one we would need it in the developing countries. So you can see that not even half of the investment needs are being covered today. So let me move forward to point, target 6.2, which is sanitation for all. Uh, and it should help to end open defecation, paying special attention to the needs of women and girls and those in vulnerable situations. This picture shows you just a small solution, one of the toilets that we have been building for a school in the village around one of our factories in Bangladesh. I'm showing this because the interesting outcome of this, of this toilet, this simple thing, was that on average, girls at that school stayed one year longer at school because they had the toilet. <coughs> Before, when they became 14 years old, they didn't have a toilet, they had to go somewhere outside they would just come not come to school. So there are more equally urgent reasons to address the issue, and among them, of course, is pollution, pollution and health. <coughs> also here, you see the figures. The situation and the trends are quite problematic. Who has to act here? Well, I come back again, what I say many times. There are responsibilities which shouldn't be taken away from governments. I believe that the schools and other public institutions, authorities are responsible that there are toilets and the authorities have to play their role. Private companies can contribute, NGOs can contribute, but we should not assume all the responsibilities. And then, and this might sound politically perhaps not fully correct, but that's the way I am, families also have their own responsibility. When I am with those people sometimes in the neighborhoods of them, I'm always surprised that normally I find a television, a color television set, I find one or two mobile phones, and I don't find the toilet. And I think also there we have to make sure that people are putting the priorities right. <coughs> Toilets, of course, are only 
one part of it closely linked with toilets is sewage water, and this takes me to target 6.3, reducing the water pollution. We hope that we are able to eliminate dumping, minimizing the release of hazardous chemicals and materials, and halving the proportion of untreated wastewater, and at least doubling recycling and safe reuse globally. Actually, over 80% of wastewater is not collected or treated worldwide. <coughs> the discharge of untreated sewage is the single most important source of pollution of surface and groundwater in developing countries. Contaminated water from inadequate wastewater management provides one of the greatest health challenges restricting development. So that's the next very, very big, big challenge. Um, for the optimist, I think this chart is interesting. Um, it shows how normally pollution evolves with prosperity. So water quality deteriorates first and then starts to improve again. And the lake where I'm living, Lake Geneva, is a case in point. To illustrate this pattern, this curve is called the Kuznets curve of water pollution. But I, th I only want to say one thing. This improvement of the pollution is not something that comes just by the law of God. It happens is when you get to a certain level of prosperity at a society, society is willing to invest in order to treat the water in a better way. So it's not enough just to have the curve and wait that this will happen, but I think for me it is normally a curve that I use when I talk to politicians in developing countries, China or in, in, in India, and tell them, look, you are still on the growing curve, it's time now just to start to invest in order to bring the wastewater solution down. And of course, like always, also, Industry has to play its role, and in the case of Nestle, I can say that since 1930, every Nestle factory has a waste treatment plant. Let me move on to target 6.4, and this is by 2030 to substantially increase the water use efficiency across all sectors to ensure sustainable withdrawals and supply of fresh water to address water scarcity and substantially reduce the number of people suffering from water scarcity. Now, I have brought you here um, the latest, uh, latest tool that I saw in Davos this year, which is the Earth Engine time-lapse machine. And what you're going to see is the lake of Aral, the biggest south water lake, over the last years, from 1984, you see below, and to see what happened to this lake over the last, since 1984 to the year 2015. The biggest Sweetwater Lake basically disappeared. And you can see it and you can be there. Uh, due to one fact, and this is the overuse 
of its affluence for the irrigation of agriculture, mainly cotton, mainly in Uzbekistan and in Kazakhstan. And what is left behind is a desert of sand mixed with pesticides, which is highly, highly toxic, and which doesn't allow not even settlements in the area which was once a lake. Water overuse happens on other continents too. And you can see the dark red for severe water stress in North Africa, Central and South Asia, but also Northern China and the USA. And it affects some of the main cereal growing areas of the world. So if I add up all of this, excesses, uses in individual watersheds, this leads me to the figures in this chart that you have here. Total withdrawals are today about 5,000 uh, cubic kilometers of water against a sustainable supply of about 4,200. So that we have today an excess of uh, freshwater usage close to 20% already. 10 years ago, when I looked at the first time, it was 10%. That's when we started the water resource group. And the chart also gives you an idea where this water goes. About 10% goes to households, about 20% to industry, of which more than half is used for the energy production. And the main users are farms. About 70% of fresh water withdrawn goes to the agriculture. If I make a look forward to the 2030, we are changing the way the world is using water today. The withdrawals will further increase due to population growth, of course, demographic growth, about 1% per year, and also with prosperity. The water usage of a middle-class income household is about four times as much the one of a poor household. So the more we have creating a middle class, which fortunately we are doing, but you have a factor of four times more water usage. So we will be running out of water with the main risk being for the biggest use of water, namely for the farmers to grow in the food. And although water is a local issue, the crisis that will be produced by, by water shortage is going to be a global food uh, crisis. Already today, more than 20% of cereals globally are grown in basins where withdrawals are twice as big as sustainable availabilities from national renewals. You see here the charts and the pictures. For the time being, this gap is being covered by the usage of fossil water from underground aquifers, such as the Ogala aquifer here in the US, or is water supposed to flow to shrinking lakes like Lake Aral you have seen, or Lake Chad in Africa, which 10 years ago was 25,000 square kilometer. Today it's 2,500 square kilometer left in 10 years. At Nestle, we try to address this issue of water usage in partnership with our farmers helping them to increase their water efficiency. I show you some examples. In Colombia, for example, we have developed a technology which avoids that Arabica cafe has to be washed. Washing coffee was a huge source of uh, creation of wastewater. And uh, in the case of Vietnam, similarly, 
And we also support them with small infrastructures, which allows to reduce the pollution from manure and transform them into gas. Um, Nestle itself is this relative small use of water, just to give you an idea, because this is another one that is being put forward many times. Nestle's total water withdrawal corresponds to 0.0009% of the water withdrawal. This includes all the bottled water that we are selling in the world. So as you can see, it's not, it doesn't have, it's not even a drop in a bathtub. Uh, the said before, the uh, by far biggest uh, contribution to water saving can be done in the area of agriculture, and it is in the reduction of loss and waste of food on the way to the consumer. The potential losses on uh, traditional supply chains from the farm to the fork can go up to 50%, like it's in the case of Pakistan, which you see on the left-hand side. Uh, in the case of uh, modern industry, the loss rate is below 0.4%. So there is a huge saving that you can have on the supply side on water. In the meantime, Nestle has been able to open its first zero-water milk factory uh, in, uh, down in Mexico. And the next one we are building in California in order to help them a little bit with their water issue where we are basically using the water that we extract from the milk in order to have the whole factory being run and then reutilize this water all the time. So the, those are factories who don't have any water usage anymore. Now, solutions in our own reach along the supply chain, they matter, and it's important, and I think everybody has to make its part, but we also must participate in more comprehensive approaches. And this is the reason why we created the 2030 Water Resources Group, which is a public-private partnership, which I have the honor to chair. And what we are doing is we are providing analytical tools for governments and stakeholders to understand better the issues, to set up cost-effective solutions, and to help them to find an equilibrium between what they have sustainable uh, water supply in their ecosystem and how much water they need for their economy to go. Up there, you just see a cost curve. I don't want to go into details. This is a cost curve we established for India where we looked. The gray shade is a deficit that India has. That's what they are taking too much water out. And we have been proposing to the government the different measures that they can do, and not only the different measures, but also the cost which goes with each one of these measures. And what is interesting here is that you can see that those projects which normally politicians like the best, which is building a new dam, building a new canal, making big infrastructure, they are not necessary. You can, you can overcome the gap of a country like India only if you go down there and you see that the cost for all of India would be 5.6 billion, I think, which is a small drop in the budget of India, and they could find a rebalanced water uh, situation. 
So this is what we're offering in the Water Resource Group to different countries all over the world. Uh, I'm working actually with 10 different countries and we are trying to find this balance that we have. Uh, the longer term solution must address some of the systematic problems. And for me at the core, and I know it is again one of those emotional issues, one of the issues is that we have to overcome this diamond water paradox. We have to give water value. And I think it, Adam Smith said it in 1776, I mean, he already recognized this, that nothing is more useful than water, but it will purchase scarcely anything. And a, a diamond, on the contrary, has scarcely any use value, but a very great quantity of other goods may frequently be handed off in exchange of it. That's our problem with the water. It doesn't buy anything. We don't give it any value. And uh, this leads to a highly contentious discussion, namely giving water price. And here are some rough concepts. I will not go into the details about it. What might be needed to get proper water pricing? We have to think about tradable, and I know, Peter, you were looking at this very carefully all the time. We have to look at tradable water rights among the existing owners of water. Most cases, the owner of the land is the owner of the water. I personally believe that if you really want to get to water as a tribal aspect, you will have to separate this ownership. It has been done in Alberta, the, the, in, in closest to you, where the ownership of land and the ownership of the water has been separated. And this was the reason why the only stock exchange, it's not the stock, water exchange that exists is in Alberta. Secondly, we have to have a full cost recovery for the infrastructure, by far the biggest part of the cost of the water, and the fee that helps setting aside the water for environmental flows. Today, the one party who pays the overuse of the humankind is environment. That's where you have five of the biggest rivers bringing no water at all, to the sea, the deltas are completely being dried out. The biggest lakes, as I have shown you, are drying out. The one who pays for it is the environment. I would like to add three brief comments on it. The first one is there must be exceptions for the poor. As I mentioned earlier, water for survival must be free for those who cannot afford to pay. And it is possible to be done. We introduced it in South Africa. In South Africa, obviously the government, but with the help that we had when we established a new water policy, the first 6,000 liters of water per month are free of charge. This is what the human rights are all about. This is the water they need for hydration and for minimum sanitation. Every liter of water afterwards has a price. And the more you're using, the higher is the price. So we are turning around, we are inversing completely the system of economy of scale, which says the more you use, the cheaper the stuff is. Absolutely non-acceptable in the case of water. It has to be the other way around. The less you use, the less should be the value you're paying. And the more you use, every time it should become more and more expensive. So that those who have the privilege to fill up their swimming pool are not filling it up with the cheap subsidized water from the poors, but they are paying a full price
for this water that goes finally into the swimming pool. The second one is, there cannot be a global price. A liter of water here doesn't have the same value than a liter of water in the Sahara. It will never have. Water is not oil. Many times people are comparing this uh, water with oil. Absolutely not. These are completely two different markets. And the other thing is, the value of water will always be bigger than any price on the tariff you're giving it. Because it's the most valuable raw material that we have. So let me move forward to point number 6.5, namely by 2030, to implement integrated water resources management at all levels, including through transboundary cooperation as appropriate. And I like this wonderful picture from the Philippines, uh, which shows you a very beautiful integrated solution of water management. Paddy uh, fields store water at the time of heavy rain and gradually discharge the water into the downstream rivers and surrounding areas, and therefore they are preventing erosion and damage caused by flood. The Bureau of Water and Soil Management of the Government of the Philippines estimated in a study that the value of thus, the, only the value of the flood prevention is about 13% of the total value of the rice production that is being done. That's value use, you see, of the water, which again, nobody considers, nobody gives it the value. But it can be calculated. So in this specific case, it's about 13%. Target 6.5 also postulates a need for transborder cooperation. Water crossing borders is a rule rather than the exception. Yes, water is a, a local issue. But local doesn't mean a national issue. In most of the cases, namely 148 countries include territory within one or more transboundary river basins. So local means many countries. And therefore, people very often talk about water as a potential cause of war. And water, unfortunately, has been cause of war the latest one, I would say, South Sudan, was certainly a war about water. But it doesn't have to be. The photo which I show you there <coughs> is the original Rhine Agreement from 1868, which is the oldest international agreement that I have found, which is still functioning today. And think about it. It includes Germany and France. 1868 to today. World wars were being fought. But even the terrain on the left-hand side of the Rhine, right-hand side changed, languages changed. But the water agreement was valid during all these years, even during these uh, uh, war years. Today we have about 450 international water agreements which have been signed and which I am convinced are helping to keep a more stable and pacific environment. Last but not least, let's come to target 6.6, uh, which is to protect and restore water-related ecosystems, including mountains, forests, wetlands, rivers, aquifers, and lakes. Finally, we're getting to this environmental part. And I just show you once more here 
the, what it means to this environment. As you can see here, 1973, the biggest lake. You see on the upper side, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan here, Russia on the other side. You see it in 2004, it's not so long ago, and you see it today. <coughs> and you also see the drying up of the lake, the UAS, the overuse of the water of its affluence in order to grow cotton. One of the reasons why we are paying relatively little for our T-shirts. And the contaminants of early water flows, pesticides and others, which are becoming exposed on the surface and are being blown into the air. And this directly and indirectly affects the health, particularly of infants in these areas. And cancer in this area is about five times more uh, prevailing than in another part of this region. Now, let's come to, a, to an end. But instead of a summary, here you have the water goal and the six targets again. I think what is clear that now it's time for implementation. And implementation needs strong and continuous support from all of us, everybody who is convinced that this is the biggest challenge that we have. Perhaps there is one question. Should there be a defined order of priority of the six targets? That question has been posed to me several times. I thought about it many times. I would take 6.4 if I had to put the priority. Because if there is a further growing overuse and not enough water left, all the other targets become correspondingly more difficult to fulfill. So that's why I'm concentrating the water resource group work on these sustainable withdrawals in order to find this equilibrium. But then all six targets are deeply interconnected. The six challenges are coming together as one big mega challenge. We have limited financial resources and politicians will have to put priorities without any doubt. And we are also reminded that water is local, that the priority order for implementing the six targets need to be set according to the situation of the different countries and the different watersheds. So, how this will happen? Well, I must say I was very happy that uh, this year in December, uh, in, in, in January, at the end of January, we had uh, our water session in Davos again, and uh, the General Secretary of the United States, Ban Ki-moon, uh, decided the creation of a high-level panel on water formed by a group of heads of state and government under the leadership of the President of Mexico and the President of Mauritius. He wanted to have two countries which are different water stress situations, one being uh, more a question of, of uh, lacking of water and infrastructure and all of those things, together with eight presidents and prime ministers from different countries, including South Africa, uh, and uh, he is just inviting now and them individually. And what they really, what he asked them to do is to motivate action, to focus on public uh, policy dialogue. They uh, are asked to integrate private sector models and practices and civil society initiatives towards this 
UN Water Goal, and they also should advocate in financing and implementation and to promote the efforts to mobilize financial resources and scale up investments for the goal, including through innovative financing and implementation strategies. So I must say from something that started 10 years ago in Davos in a small room with 10 people when I talked the very first time about water as an issue for humankind, I must say I felt quite happy when I saw now the creation of the high-level panel on water with 10 presidents and prime ministers in charge, but also in a clear understanding that they will have to rely on everybody of society, whether it's on the private sector, whether it's on the civil sector, in order to help to achieve the implementation of those goals, of these development goals. With that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm now looking forward to your questions. And uh, before moving there, let me mention my personal blog. If you want to have more details, if you want to dug a little bit more into this, you're welcome to, to visit me on my blog, thewaterchallenge.com. And uh, if not, you can also go to Water Resources Group 2030, where we are sharing completely transparently all the experiences from all our work that we're doing with 10 governments all over the world. With that, thank you very much for your attention, and I'm now open for any questions, Prime. Peter, thank you for that outstanding overview of the world's water <coughs> challenges. And as, as Peter said, we're gonna now open it up for questions. Before we do, Peter, just a couple of small gifts for you to take home. One is a small mystery box. I have no idea what's in here, but you can discover that in your hotel room tonight, I guess. Thank you very much. And the other it's is, heavy. <laughs> it is heavy. It might have some value to it. Uh, the other is a book, Chasing Water, that we've used to teach the world about, chasing, about these water scarcity issues and very much concurs with many of the points that you made today. So thank you, sir, for well, thank you very much, talk. Thank you. Okay, uh, we're going to do the Q&A with uh, a microphone. So if you have a question, please raise your hand and uh, somebody will run a microphone over to you. We need to wait until you've got a microphone because we are recording and we won't be able to hear the question if we don't. So please. Hi, um, thank you so much for speaking. Uh, I just have a question about the food losses in developing countries. Um, you had a slide that said from farm to fork, there's a loss 30 to 50% in quantity and 25 to 50% in value. Um, is that like the amount of water that's not, what's, I, don't, I guess my question is what's the loss in? No, that, that was a loss of food being lost between the farm to the fork, basically. Uh, we have, worldwide, we are losing about 40% of all the food that is being produced is being lost. In the developing country, it's being lost because of lack of infrastructure. So it's getting rotten, there is not sufficient cooling, it's bumping on dirty roads and things like this, so we are losing about 40% there. In the developed countries, unfortunately, the 40% goes basically into the 
garbage. Okay? That's 40%. The, 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 the exact figure for the UK is 40% about. Okay? So we just throw it away. Now, if you think about that 70% of the freshwater withdrawal is for producing food, if we could save this 40%, big part of the water problem is solved. Right. As simple as Thank that. Thank you. Hi there. Um, being in a place where we learn best in case example, I was wondering if you could share an example that sticks out to you as where the implementation or improvement has really been a success, and whether that's come through a government effort, a corporate effort, or some sort of partnership. Yeah, I must say, and I think I mentioned this, um, from the work that I have been doing, or the organization I'm chairing has been doing, I would say South Africa seems to me uh, where we have advanced the best. Uh, South Africa is a very water-stressed country. It has big tension between the three areas. Uh, household, you have a lot of townships, you know, where water is not yet given. So you have a, you have a, a real issue on the, on the human rights aspect, access to, to drinkable, uh, healthy water. You have an extraction industry, which is very uh, water-intensive. And you have a big agriculture. So you basically have the three, the three uh, things very well represented. <clears throat> and uh, I think the solution we came up with, uh, especially on, 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 the, on the human rights side, to help to give access uh, with the 6,000 liters of free, I think this is a very good example. I mean, that's a, there's only one country where I learned about similar thing, and this is Oman. Oman, for about 2,500 years, has a water system which is absolutely fascinating. Uh, it's a desertic country. So the villages are building canals, small canals, from the mountains. There's a mountain region in order to bring it to the village. The water that comes into the village goes into a fountain where people can take out the drinking water. It then moves into the mosque. And the mosque, in this case, is normally is also the school. So the children have access to water, and the people have access to sanitation, because as you know, when you go to a mosque, you have to wash your shoes, you have to wash your, uh, your feet, you have to wash your hands. So sanitation is taken care. And once it leaves the mosque, then it becomes a tradable water right. And this is being negotiated on the marketplace. Normally, the elder, under the supervision of the elder of the village, and every farmer who has a right to so many liters of water can sell his water to his neighbor, or he can buy water, or things like this. So you have in one line, you have basically uh, the human right aspects perfectly taken care, and then afterwards, you have a tradable water right that is, by the way, uh, uh, heritable to the next generation. So it's, uh, people are really taking care, and they take care of the infrastructure. Now, this is a very old one, but I mean, the basic idea that you take, first of all, you assure that, first of all, people have access to the hydration and to the minimum sanitation came from this example from Oman. Only in a modern time, you do it by giving 6,000 liters free of charge. All right. I have a question, too. Um, 
So thinking about sustainable water withdrawals, uh, it sounds as though the idea of, of putting a price on water makes a lot of sense for how to economically limit how much people are using. But it seems to me that a lot of governments are choosing to intentionally distort the price of water in order to incentivize economic development around something they perceive as, as an advantage that they have. Um, so what is the international response that you would call for, or is there an international response to limit countries from making these types of decisions to distort the water price to incentivize unsustainable withdrawals? Uh, I would say that, first of all, the biggest misuse on the uh, water side for the time being continues to be in the subsidies that, that the governments are paying because the subsidies goes into the wrong pocket. That's what I tried to, to, to show to you before, okay? So you have billions and billions of dollars who instead of going into the favor of the poor is going into the pockets of the middle class and the rich. So that's already a wrong system. So you have to change the system. It's a political nightmare. The Minister of Environment and World of India in a public meeting like here, he was sitting there, he took the microphone and told me, Peter, you are right what you are saying, but I will tell you, as a Minister of Environment and Water, if I would be doing what you're telling me to do, it's, com it's committing political suicide. So I'm not going to do it. Okay? Now that was an open, I mean, fair statement from a politician, and I understand that. But that's, what, that's what, is, what is necessary. You need politicians who jump over the shades even if they are not elected afterwards. Okay? Most of the problems that we have with water are highly, highly emotional problems, political problems. It's a water management which is, which is done in the, wrong, in the wrong manner. A beautiful example for this is Phnom Penh in Cambodia. I mean, if there was, at least if I were there, were anything more corrupt and, and thing than, than, than Cambodia, frankly speaking, I hadn't seen. Water was completely, the water supply was a total disaster. There comes a man in charge of the water supply of Cambodia. And he defies and says, I'm going to ask for a price, and I'm going, for those who are not paying, I'm going to switch off the water. Guess who was not paying? You think it was the poor people? They paid. Little, but they paid. The one who was not paying were the military and the government officials of their private houses and the sinks. And the guy dared to switch off the water to the militaries, the generals, to the government officials. Today, Phnom Penh is a model of municipal water supply. Total loss in Phnom Penh is 5%. Total water loss in Phnom Penh. The only one that comes close to is Yokohama in Japan. One man. But he did his life. But he got it. 
So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a management issue. It is, an, it is a political issue. It is a, it's a, you have to dare. But who of the politics wants to do that? That's a problem. Who dares? Hi. Uh, thanks again for speaking with us today. Um, I had a question. This, this issue, as you were talking about, it seems to me uh, very much, you know, as the chairman of Nestle, one of the largest corporations in the world, speaking to a bunch of Americans that more or less take this issue for granted, I would assume. Um, how, how do you overcome, from our perspective, the apathy that we most likely have towards this issue, and then also the stigma of, uh, you know, emerged economies almost telling emerging economies how to deal with these issues and tell them that it should be important to them um, from the seat that you have and, and from the country that, you know, the country that we all come from? Well, first of all, I'm not, I'm not with, my, with the water resource group. I'm not going to anybody uh, to ask them whether they are interested in our services. I'm only accepting that the water resource group gets involved in a country if the president or the prime minister gives us a call and invites us to come. First condition, okay? Second condition, although we are embedded in the World Bank, we are not bringing money. Second condition is that the government is willing to invest money so that we can do the work that we have to do for him. Third condition is you are in charge for the political framing of the water policy. We are here to help you. We can bring you the experience, we can bring you technology, we know how to run projects, all of those things. But you are in charge and you assume the political responsibility. That's the way we're working. And I must say, I'm happy I have more people demanding that I have people to work on it. But in the beginning, it was difficult. Um, you talked about putting a price on water and how that price would be different geographically based on the availability of water. Um, and some countries have responded to this by starting to import or export that water. Uh, what do you think about that? Like the Philippines who's importing water or Canada who has banned the exportation of water. What do you think about that in terms of both the geopolitical risk between water rich and water poor countries and also just as a general solution to international water management? Well, I must say the whole Drinking water export-import has never been a, a, big, a big issue. I mean, it has all has been tried. I will never forget the iceberg that was uh, uh, brought from the Antarctica to Saudi Arabia because they thought this was the best way in order to get fresh water to Saudi Arabia. Well, they brought one iceberg up. By the time it was up, there was not very much left from this iceberg, and, and it didn't work out. Then you had this... Exporting of drinking water, you know, we had, yes, uh, Barcelona received uh, about three years ago. They were completely dried out of water and they got some water with tankers over from, from, from thing. Those are not solutions. Those are not solutions. 
we have to recognize that we have a limited amount of water supply. Therefore, we have to find ways how we can limit and dimension the, sub, the, the demand side to this limited amount of water that is available. That's what we have to do. We have to work on the demand side and not on the supply side. Every politician likes to work on the supply side. Every politician is proud about to build a new dam or to open a new canal and to stay there and we have solved the water solution. Well, he has solved the water solution perhaps for the next 100 kilometers, but by producing another, another problem by 500 kilometers on the neighbor, okay? So this is not the solution. The solution has to come from diminishing the demand side. And we know how to do it. If you looked, you didn't have time, certainly, to look into the, the Indian water, Indian water uh, cost curve. There are a lot of things that can be done that doesn't even cost anything. I mentioned this morning, no-tilt agriculture. You are saving energy. It's good for climate change, okay? Because tilting is enormous energy intensive. You're puffing out with your tractor all the, all the diesel of the world, okay? And the next thing you're doing, you have an evaporation of about 30% of the earth which is. When we have today technologies which allows you to put the seal in with a, with a small needle into the soil and you do not have to do any more blowing, okay? So no-tilt agriculture is so easy to be applied. The difference between an open canal irrigation or a trop irrigation is huge. And so I can go on. We know how, we have solutions for this thing. Yeah? And I have not even touched on one which is, uh, for me, I mean, the, the biggest aberration at all, which is biofuel. Okay? 4,600 liters of water for one liter of bioethanol. 9,100 liters of water for one liter of biodiesel. You think this makes sense? In a world where we are running out of water? I don't understand it. Latest figure, 38% of all corn production in the United States goes into bioethanol. So multiply now the amount of water. Just eliminate this, one political decision, okay? And you have the water crisis in the United States basically solved. So we know what has to be done. But you have to have political will to do it. And this is a positive part, if you want, about the water crisis. It's not something, you know, if, if there were no solution, I wouldn't be talking. But I know the solutions. I'm just frustrated because we are not able to do it. And instead of starting to bring this whole thing down, as you have seen in the chart, we are making everything, every single day even worse, even worse. Brian? Thank you very much. I can't imagine a better way to end an excellent presentation. Thank you all for showing up today and enjoy the rest of the week. <laughs>